Uh, I got one. Thanks anyway. Hey, Phil, uh, I'm changing the scripture reading, so you might want to write, write that down. Uh, Genesis 27, 6 through 29. Gen 27, 6 through 29. Oh, good.
Good morning. I have a couple visitors with us tonight, or today, I should say. Uh, make them feel welcome, as we always do. Never know when we're, what, entertaining angels unaware. So, a couple of announcements. Uh, we've all got the first four down by heart. Number five, no evening service tonight due to the holiday. And next week as well, uh, we will be having our communion service, and then there will be no evening service for that as well. I have a brief update on the on the twin granddaughters uh, that we've been praying about. Uh, they have both been released from the hospital into the, into the mother's care. There is a caveat to that. <clears throat> You can read in any inference that you want. Uh, grandmother's not real happy about it because uh, Adeline, uh, the oldest, is still having difficulty breathing while she nurses. And uh, the other one is still having uh, other breathing issues as well. Uh, they were staying at the Ronald McDonald House, and they had to close the house to do some emergency construction, so the hospital had to pay for the, the uh, uh, motel bills. And uh, she thinks that because that happened, uh, they discharged them maybe a little bit ahead of time. So I think that happens more than we like to uh, believe. But I would still encourage you all to keep... Uh, Abriel and Adelie in your prayers, and for Cynthia. Uh, she was in quite a bit of despair last week. Uh, she's getting through it a little bit, but uh, I think uh, they still need us to uh, be fervent in our prayers for them. Do we have any other uh, prayer requests, comments, notices uh, that we need to be aware of? Anything going on that uh, is of concern or praiseworthy? Janelle. Okay. Excellent. She was receptive. She's a teenager. How many teenagers do we know are receptive? Let's select few. Okay. Okay, we all heard that. Uh, keep Skyler in your prayers. And uh, it, it's tough when a child leaves home. It's tougher when they leave unexpectedly. So... Most of us may have been through that. So again, I encourage you all to, to keep Skyler and the Marshall family all in your prayers for this. Any other comments? Any other uh, prayer requests? Any word on the Lewises, how they're doing? I'm not, I don't get any memos from anybody on this, so I gotta ask today, so. They're still doing okay? For all we know. Okay. 
How about Tom Roth? Heard from him? Okay. Tom's been hunkered down for, it seems like, eons. But uh, I saw him fleetingly in a Kroger store up in Lapeer uh, a couple weeks ago, and he looked like he was doing okay. So didn't get a chance to talk to him. He was moving too quick. So, Jess? <clears throat> yes, Jess. Is the trial not going well, or? But she is going to be going under general anesthesia on Tuesday for procedure. Okay. Everybody's got that. Mercy and prayer for Tuesday. Okay. Anything else? If there's nothing else, then I would direct you to go to Scripture for Meditation, taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 through 40, and that will be page 1875 in your pew Bible.
you stand with us as we begin our service with prayer? Elder Clayton, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer. Good morning. Will you take your red uh, Trinity hymnal this morning? Take your red hymnal and turn to 101. 101 in the red.
is our favorite hymn this morning. <clears throat> Crickets, look at all those hands. Oh, Hannah, thank you. It's well, it's in the brown, and it's what? 493 in the brown hymnal. And why? Besides the fact that no one else was picking. Good song to have stuck in your head. 493 in the brown. <coughs>
We have a slight change for our scripture reading this morning. Our scripture reading has been changed to Genesis chapter 27, verses 6 through 29. That'll be page 40 in your pew Bible. When you come to it, please stand with us. Genesis 27, verses 6 through 29. Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give it to you, my blessing, in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goatskins. And she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game, so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate. 
And he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine, so what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and your brother will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Father in heaven, as we absorb this, Lord, we pray that the words that you have would truly cast us into thought of what deceitfulness and how your providence overcame it. Be with us this hour. Let us be attentive, and may your blessings fall upon us. In the name of Christ, amen. Will you take your brown hymnal and turn to number 486, 486 in the brown. Christian soldiers rise 
Our text is Genesis 27, verses 6 and following. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we studied... Substitutes for faith. That sometimes 
characterize our skeptical hearts. That is to say, instead of believing God, we believe in our own abilities and skills, for example, as people who know what to do. That's always a danger. We think we know what to do. The builder of barns knew what to do when his fields yielded a super bumper crop. He had no place to store the extra produce. So he decided he's going to tear down his little barns and build bigger ones. Now I should say there is the biblical principle of storing up in the present for the future day of need so long as we do not count on, that is, put our faith in the savings account to meet our future needs. The rich man was wealthy in possessions, but he was bankrupt towards God. He had material goods, but no spiritual guarantees. We trust in our reasoning ability, but often is not sanctified reason, but reasoning with the same human wisdom we used to use to solve life's problems when we did not know God. Think about that. So what I'm saying is that being a Christian does not mean we automatically, automatically now, think Christianly. We place our faith in idle concepts of God and we shape God in our thinking to suit our own values. Let me say that the God of the Bible has defined himself. He doesn't need you to shape him and mold him. And one attribute of God that he affirms is that he does not change. Let me read it for you from Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One little verse, but boy, what does it say? Science does not explain him. Time does not change him. He does not age. He does not mutate. He does not change his mind or alter his plans. Not ever. I mean, think about this. If you alter perfection, it isn't perfection anymore. To tinker with perfect is to destroy the perfect. So our task then is to believe in God and not in all these other substitutes for faith. And today I want to consider another subject that is very much related to all of this. And that is the subject of feelings versus 
faith. And as we come, let's ask for the Lord to be with us. Father, send your spirit of knowledge to us. Grant us the truth that is found in your word. We're learning about who God is. Thankfully, you are telling us, you have told us in your word who you are, what you are like. Our task is to believe it and to apply it to our lives. The world does not have this concept of God. Their definition of God is paltry, sickly, a weakling, a pushover, or any other many adjectives we could throw there from the world. The scripture says that God confronted his people you have thought that I am altogether like you. Which, of course, isn't true. God is not like us. We didn't create him. He created us. So Lord bless us as we talk about this vital subject because our society is locked into this feely, touchy environment. And it's a ploy of the devil to keep us from obeying God. Bless the truth to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking today at the subject, feeling versus faith. Feelings is the new synonym for believe. Or is it? The first thing of some significance in this matter is to realize that the Bible uses the word feel or feeling in a very sparse way and in a very limited sense. For example, King James Version uses these two terms a total of only ten times. Think of the thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of words found in the Bible. But the word feel or feeling is used only ten times. Dad ought to say something to you real quick. What we have in our text this morning, it's a little different view of feel. Isaac asked to feel the arms of the person he thought he was addressing, namely Esau, because Esau, we are told in Scripture, was a hairy man. He was a man of the field. He was a hunter, whereas Jacob was a younger son. He was smooth-skinned. He was a herdsman. Isaac was blind in his old age. He couldn't see the distinction between his two sons anymore. So his solution was, let me feel. And Ivy says, let me touch. Going to touch the man's arms, hands, whatever. 
the significance of the King James limited usage of the words feel or feeling tell us that this terminology was not in vogue. It was not in vogue in the 17th century as a description of what people were thinking about. on any particular issue. And this remained constant for centuries. You would never hear a person in the days of Spurgeon, England, for example, ask another, well, tell me how you feel about this. It just would never be. Now fast forward to the 20th century, to 1966, when the good news paraphrase translation came out. And he uses the terms feel or feeling 25 times, a little more than double what the King James Version used when it was written. In 1984, the modern English NIV Translation hit the shells, but again, the NIV only uses the word feel or feeling 21 times. The recent English Standard Version of 2003 uses the term about 15 times. So they're start, starting to cut back on using that terminology. You say, Pastor, what's, what's your point? Just this, modern English translations and old, seldom used terms, feel or feeling, they do not use those terms in any kind of theological context to determine the basis for actions. You would not hear them say, oh, I feel I need to go to this year's Bible conference in Ohio. They didn't speak that way. I don't feel like praying today. I'm so discouraged. Well, my feeling is that the church needs to concentrate more on prayer and less on programs. I don't feel like going to church today. I have this headache. I don't feel like I'm saved. I struggle with ongoing sin every day. Have you noticed that there has been an explosion, not only in the use of the words feel and feeling, but in the concept that feeling must be, it must be the criteria by which we make life's decisions and order our actions. Statement. Well, if you don't feel like this is something you want to do, then don't do it. Again, don't deny your feelings. And the corollary. Don't go against your feelings. Or what about this one? Well, if it feels right, 
then it's right for you. All of this, all of this, plays a vital role in destroying the reality that truth is objective. It is absolute. That what is true, I mean, if it is true, it is true for all. Even if they do not accept it as such. But our feeling-oriented society has invented the lie that truth is, well, it's relative. That means it's flexible. It's pliable. True for you? Or each man must find his or her own truth. If this notion, feelings rule, did not come from the Bible, and if it didn't come from God, from where did it arise? Well, it came from the mid-19th century philosopher and psychologist William James, who wrote an essay, The Sentiment of Rationality. Prior to his work, The Principles of Psychology. It influenced Dewey and others. And the philosopher William James writes, The psychology will, the, the true psychologist will recognize the rationality of a concept. If something is true and believable, as he recognizes everything else by certain, here's how he recognizes, certain subjective marks with which it affects him. And when he gets the marks, he may know that he has got the rationality, the truth. These marks include, here they are, a strong feeling of ease and peace and rest, and a feeling of the sufficiency of the present moment, of its absoluteness. That is, it's true for you. Again, he says, the concept that awakens and active impulses or satisfies other athletic demands better than others will be accounted the more rational concept, truth, and will, des will deservedly prevail. You say, well, that was just a bunch of gobbledygook for me. <laughs> well, it's a bunch of gobbledygook for me <laughs> as well. As philosophers generally pontificate all the time. If you've never been to college and heard the secular professors pontificate, you wouldn't know about this. But this happens all the time. 
You say, well, I don't understand a word of that. I mean, if we were to put this in modern parlance, Mr. James is saying, if something moves you, if it excites you, whatever satisfies you with a strong feeling of ease or peace or rest, then that is rational for you. That's the reasonable thing for you to do. And it deserves to prevail, to be the basis for the way you think and act. Let me put this in the vernacular. It is the modern philosophy, if it feels good, do it. Feelings rule or some other derivatives if you feel it's right it is right or trust your feelings or again don't deny your feelings now you see what has happened How a person feels emotionally about a given topic becomes the basis for how that person will respond to all of life. Truth becomes a matter of discovering your own feelings on a matter. It's not objective. It's subjective. This is why the push is on for tolerance of diverse views. Oh, you know, don't be so narrow-minded. Realize that what is truth for you, what makes you feel at ease, at peace, at rest, may not be what makes the next person feel the same. See, it's all feely, touchy. And we must satisfy our feelings about things above all else. Oh, yeah. Feelings rule, not some notion of objective truth. So what I feel is right is right. Oh, maybe not for you, but for me. So let me be me, and I'll give you your space if you allow me to have my space. And these feely-touchy people are feely-touching their way straight to hell. God does not come to us and say, what what do you feel about this? Here's what I want you to do. What do you What do you feel? Feel and feeling are sensory motivations. They're not cerebral. It's Friday morning, the start of spring break. The kids have been in school all week. It's a day for them to sleep in. It's a day for you to sleep in. 
But it's the start of your vacation, and you know that there are certain facts that jump up. That if you do not make it past Detroit by 9 a.m. on your way to South Carolina's Myrtle Beach, where you're going to vacation, you will be delayed by hours. But the kids complain, and you sympathize with their lament. But I don't feel like getting up at 5 a.m. Do you go with your feelings? Or what with what you know will be a bottleneck in Detroit. Well, Mr. James would say, well, go with your feelings because what is important is that you be at ease, at peace, at rest with your decision. Forget forget the cerebral. Up for the emotions. And to support these feelings, we then add a host of rationalizations, which also make us feel better about our decision to travel later in the morning. We say, well, you know, instead of heading out at 5 a.m., if we wait till 9.30, the traffic in Detroit will be less congestive because the rush hour will be over. The kids won't be so cranky in the car because they will have had four more hours of sleep. Or again, it's more pleasant to travel in daylight than in the dark. And so we begin to rationalize our decision. Beloved, feelings is not a thinking man's game. It's not. They have no rational basis whatsoever. They have to do with the senses, the emotions, whether you're sad or glad, whether you're happy or you're mad, whether you're pleased or put out, whether you're sickly or feeling well and strong. They are fueled by sight, sound, touch, your perceptions, your senses of well-being or danger, as the case may be. And the fallacy in all this is that truth, being absolute because it comes from God, does not appeal to us on the basis of how we feel about a given topic, but on the trustworthiness of the God who has spoken, and God never comes to us and says, Well, how do you feel about this? Question mark. No, he always comes to us and says, this is how it is. Obey and you will be blessed. And we ask the question, what gives God the right to tell me how it is? He is the all-knowing creator of every man, woman, and child. And for us who know him through the forgiveness and grace of Christ, he is our Lord and our Savior. 
We therefore live to please him, not ourselves. We set our feelings aside, knowing how untrustworthy and how fickle feelings can be, and knowing that our feelings about life are influenced by sin and society and circumstances. Oh, and past experience, too. And a whole host of unreliable criteria that shape those feelings. I think it is even fair to say that how you feel about something today may very well change by tomorrow. That's how fluid they are. As circumstances change, we change. But should such perceptions then become the basis for what we say and do? God does not call on us to feel that what he tells us is right. Instead, God calls on us to believe what he has told us is right, even if we don't feel like listening. And this is our only course of conduct that will make us holy like God, without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. We're not used to this, are we? We're not used to an authority figure that says, this is the way it is to be. You will do this or die doing your own thing. And that's where the world digs in. You're not telling me what to do. Who do you think you are? I could tell him what he thinks he is, but they wouldn't like it. And indeed, sinful man does not like an authoritative figure who is righteous and perfect in holiness. Ooh. Well, that brings us to Isaac and Rebekah and God's word. Took a while for me to get here, but we're here. What we notice is that God's declaration to Rebecca when she was pregnant was that there were twins within her womb. And God said to her, the older will serve the younger. He told her right up front, this is what's going to happen. Jacob and Esau were twin boys born to Isaac and Rebekah. But prior to the birth of these boys, God made a determination about whom, excuse me, about them, which smack at the human conventions of the day. What am I? What do I mean? Well, the Lord said to her, and I'm reading scripture: Two nations are in your womb; two peoples from within you are to be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older child will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 
verse 23. Oh, my. This was unheard of in Oriental society. The older sibling, even if by a few minutes, born before the other twin, had the birthright to become the head of the clan and to rule over the family. It's a done deal, period. This was always the rule. The older supersedes the younger. First is first. And you can't change that. When Jacob in later life wants to marry Rachel, the younger daughter of Laban, he learned this lesson in a very practical way. Laban switched the daughters on him, and he ended up unknowingly, because virgins in those days wore veils, he ended up marrying Leah, Rachel's older sister, and when he protested to Laban, that Laban, hey, that was not the one for whom I had bargained, Remember, he worked seven years. That was the bargain in order to get Rachel. Laban answered him, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Rules is rules. Genesis 29, verse 26. So, God's declaration concerning Jacob to rule over Esau did not set well with Isaac, his father. Oh, it set well with Rebekah because she favored Jacob. But Isaac favored Esau because he was a man's man, we would say. A hunter, a man of the field, a mighty man with the bow and the arrow. Hairy like a woolly mammoth. Lots of testosterone. If he were around in our day, he would be into snowmobiles and dirt bike racing and shotgun shooting and chainsaw ripping and yeehaw, wild man of the mountain in the woods. The kind of guy that would take on a grizzly bear with a pocket knife in one hand and a popsicle stick in the other. This was Esau. Dad loved him. But Jacob, <laughs> oh my, a stay-at-home mama's boy. You like to sew and cook, clean house, plant flowers, sing songs in the shower. Isaac was going to have none of that as the head of the clan, no matter what God said. So, in stark defiance to the clear word of God, Isaac, in his old age, now blind, now unable to see, said to Esau, verse 2, I'm 
now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, go out with your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Genesis 27, verses 2 through 4. Even here we see Isaac setting his teeth against the revealed will of God by appealing to his senses. Taste, oh, prepare for me the kind of tasty food I like so that I may give you my blessing. Oh, you got to feed me before I'll bless you. Think of that one. And this blessing was the bestowment of spiritual headship for the entire clan. That's what is involved here. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob months before for a bowl of soup. Remember that? And God said of that action, so Esau despised his birthright. Genesis 25, verse 34. Now to despise something is to think of it with little esteem, to view it as, eh, that's worthless. Easy come, easy go. So Isaac was about to bestow a blessing and a title on the very son who thought so little of God and the privileges of leading the clan in the things of God that he sold that birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. That brings me to the thought of the treachery of feelings first. Putting feelings first. The treachery of doing that. But there's more here. Rebecca, no less slacking in faith than Isaac at this point in her life, overheard Isaac's instruction to Esau. And so she took Jacob aside, her favorite, and she hatched this elaborate plan to deceive Isaac by preparing a goat with the same spices and so forth that Esau would use for game. And thus Isaac would not know the difference when Jacob presented him with mutton instead of with venison. Tasted the same. She felt God needed a little um, assistance. I mean, dare we even think that with Isaac so determined to bless Esau, that Jacob, God's pick, would have a fighting chance. Huh. So Rebecca too lacked faith. But she had an answer for everything. There was one thing that Jacob voiced to his mother. Mom Esau is a hairy man while I am smooth skinned. And as soon as dad touches me, 
he will discover my treachery, and I'll be cursed by Dad instead of blessed by him. Verse 12. Rebecca, not to be undone by this complaint. She I have a plan for that too. From the goat skin of the slain animal, she fashioned it into a collar around his neck and gauntlets. Those are the things men wear on their forearms in times of war. So that when she dressed Jacob in Esau's clothing and sent him to Isaac, what Isaac would think of was, this is Harry Esau. And guess what? The treachery worked. It worked. Verse 22, Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched, King James Version says, felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy, like those of his brother Esau. So, he blessed him. Genesis 27, verse 22 and 23. The context tells us, he then ate some of the food prepared by Rebekah, and verse 27 says, Then his father Isaac said to him, that is to Jacob, who he thinks is Esau, Come here, my son, kiss me, so he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. And the ruse was complete. What's happening here? Isaac is going on his Feelings, I mean literally, touching his son, talking to him to verify that he is Esau. But this is more than physical feeling, because internally, Isaac has always felt that Esau, not Jacob, must be the head of this family. God said otherwise, but Isaac was not about to predicate his actions in this matter, on the word of God. Uh. And his sin is compounded by the fact that even in the deception of Jacob, reasonable telltale signs arose repeatedly to alert Isaac, oh, oh, something seems wrong here. But he ignored all this. What did he ignore? Well, Jacob, as Esau, came to Isaac so quickly with the food prepared the way he liked it that Isaac asked him, verse 20, how did you find it so quickly? That is, the alleged deer. Is that very likely? An hour has passed. We have some hunters here. 
in our congregation back in the days when I used to hunt for deer. Get out there early in the morning, sit under a tree, and I'd sit there all morning looking for them to come, and they never did come. How is it that you got this so quickly? Next, Isaac asked Jacob to come near, verse 21, so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. What's that? Well, that tells me there's some doubts going on here with Isaac. He needs to verify the identity of the boy he's talking to with a touch. That's very reasonable, because Esau was hairy and Jacob was not. Third indicator, verse 23, Isaac says, Oh, the, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but oh, those hands are the hands of Esau. More suspicion. Something's wrong here, but I just can't put my finger on it. This was an empirical clue. The voice. Sounds like Jacob to me, but those hands are the hands of Esau. Now, even after all of this, verse 24, he asks again, are you really my son, Esau? Beloved, Isaac's reason was trying to break through, but his feelings wouldn't let it happen. Again and again, God was sending Isaac ample signs of the treachery in Jacob and Rebekah's scheme, but he pressed on to bless him anyway. Why? Because he was hell-bent on acting according to his own feelings in this matter. Not the word of God that he had received from God about his choice, God's choice of Jacob. Our perceptions form the basis for our feelings. Isaac wanted Esau to become the family boss, not Jacob. He felt a hunter-warrior a better choice for leadership than a mama's boy. Oh, and by the way, how terribly how terribly he misjudged Jacob. Because of Jacob, what a godly man he became. And how ruinous Esau became. Whom God defined, and I'm reading scripture, he defined Esau as Sexually immoral and 
godless. Hebrews 12, verse 16. Wow. There it is. There's God's evaluation. Sexually immoral and godless. God knew best, but Isaac didn't think so, and so he was willing to ignore all these indicators just so he could satisfy his feelings on the matter. And Isaac came to this startling realization just seconds after Jacob exited the room, because in comes Esau with his venison, seeking Isaac's blessings. And when Isaac realized what he had done and how he had come that close to successfully defying the will of God, verse 33 says, Isaac trembled violently. rough way to wake up to the sin of your heart. Came that close. I tremble too. You don't mess with God. he'll mess with you and you'll lose that brings us then to this conclusion there is a fallacy in feelings putting feelings over faith feelings are devoid of godly directives they are fickle Feelings are unreliable. They're emotional reactions. They're devoid of logic. They're devoid of reason. They're devoid of thought. They arise from circumstances and they sway with the wind. A wealthy uncle dies and he leaves you $3 million in his estate. Oh boy, you feel good. Elated. Wonderful. Happy. Two months later, the government informs you they are taking 45% of the estate in tax. Oh, now you feel down, abused, robbed. How can they do that? Money came that you did not earn. Taxes went that were paid from those funds. But your emotions, your feelings rise, fall with the wave of that happening at the given moment. You are not thinking, oh, I still have $1.1 million. No, you feel bad over the loss of the $900,000. Life is full of these changes. Get a promotion at work, oh, feel great, feel rewarded. Lose your job, oh, feel deprived, demoted. Marry the man of your dreams, oh, I'm thrilled, I'm elated, I'm bubbly. Find out he's a snoring that shakes the windows and keeps you awake all night. 
Now you feel frustrated. You feel tired from sleeplessness. I guess we're going to have to sleep in different bedrooms. I can't get any sleep. Your child comes to know Christ as Savior. You feel happy, pleased, thankful, and rightly you should. Or your child becomes rebellious, unruly, defiant, belligerent towards spiritual things, and you feel sad and injured and jealous of the parents whose kids have followed in their footprints. And there's resentment towards God. Now, God never intends us to deny our feelings, but neither does he want us to place our faith in them as a reliable guide for belief and actions. Our feelings, like anything in the Christian life, are to be brought under the authority of God's word to see if they have value or not, to see if they are the Christian response to life or not. God's word is to inform us of what is true, but we have reversed the order and we've made feelings the teacher of what is true. Have you never heard someone say, well, if you can't feel it, it's not true. Isaac and Rebecca did this on the matter of what son mother preferred or the father preferred. They both took matters into their own hands to obtain what they felt was right. Rebecca felt God had forgotten his promise and needed a little help accomplishing his will. Isaac felt God had lost all sense of propriety by choosing the younger son over the elder. Society would not look favorably on that kind of a choice. Neither one of these parents placed their faith in the declaration of God. What was the declaration of God? The older will serve the younger. Rebecca was told that up front. Neither was willing to have their feelings informed by the word of God. Are we any better? Do you ever question your feelings? Or do you just think, well, that's me. Are your feelings given free reign in your life? Are we no better when God has spoken, but his word smacks against the way we feel about a matter? Do we not know that how we feel today will change tomorrow when the circumstances change? Because feelings are what? Fickle, that's what. They're unreliable. Up and down. Oh, and another thing. Feelings are often foul. 
They are used by the evil one to make us focus on the dark side of life and to actually doubt the word of God. He did this with Eve. She told the devil, we're not to eat of that tree in the middle of the garden because God has said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the devil came back, you will not, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to be wise like him. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of the tree. And when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, that it was indeed a way for her to become wise like God, there was a sensory tintillation that trumped the word of God. Eve had no business allowing her feelings, her emotions to distract her from obeying the clear word of God. The evil one used her feelings to suggest to her that God had somehow shortchanged her with his command. Oh, God knows that your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Boy, that's sinister. That's dark. God is accused of lying. While the serpent comes off looking like a saint. He felt that it was so. And she bit into the forbidden fruit. Every move that Isaac made, every move Rebecca made, Every move Jacob made in this whole charade of deception had an evil and dark side which was to thwart or to speed God's agenda concerning his decreed will. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. Remember that. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, writes Paul, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Romans 9, verse 11. Jacob was a deceiver and a liar who received mercy. Esau was a sexually immoral man who did not. Did not receive mercy. Neither was more righteous than the other. But God may love whom he wants and hate whom he wants since both deserve his wrath. We don't think of things that way. The parents' feelings are foul. They tried, both of them tried, 
to thwart God's will. Which brings me to my main point. Feeling is not faith. Feeling is not faith. Faith is obedience. Feeling may or may not be. Have we not many scriptures that commands of worship, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praise to the Lord, Psalm 68, 32, or again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, sing praise to him, all you people, Romans 15, 11. Faith then would be to sing. And we opt out, or I don't feel like singing, so I don't. Oh. Something like, there's a simple obedience. I don't feel like it. We are commanded to give our time, our money, our energy, our resources to the services of God. But alas, too many don't do so until and unless they feel like it. What if Jesus never went to the cross until he felt like it? What if he never prayed for you unless he felt led to do so? I'll tell you what would happen. You would have no atonement for your sin, no intercession for your ongoing failures. We think with our feelings, and if we don't feel it, we don't do it. God forgive us for such misplaced empowerment of feelings. Our emotions should not have that much power with us. We invest them with too much authority. When feelings trump the word of God, we are no different in outcome than the people of the world who live day in and day out on the basis of what they feel like doing. All this relates to salvation too. People say, well, I don't feel like I'm saved. I don't feel like I'm saved. Is security of salvation based on how you feel? Well, I hope not. You may feel that way because you don't understand grace. Do you, you, you think you have yet just something to contribute and you know your sin? How's that going to work? Your guilt makes you feel unworthy, insecure, even lost. What should you do about such feelings? You look to Christ and you ask, Did Jesus die for me? Yes, no. Fact or fiction? Did that occur? 
Do you believe he died for you? Yes, no. Fact or fiction? Is there evidence that your faith is real? Do you have repentance of sin? Do you have hatred of evil? Do you have love for God? Is the fruit of his spirit in your life? Change life that only God's intervention could do. Love for God's people. A desire to be with them as much as possible. All these things and more transcend feelings because they're rooted in objective fact. I'm charging you to place your faith there. Place your faith there, not on your feelings. Faith asserts what one believes and where there is true faith, the right feelings will follow. The question all of us need to ask is not, not do I feel it is so, but do I believe it is so? That this is what God has done for me in his son, Jesus. Watch this feeling stuff. This is our society. It's all feely touchy. We have a stronger position than that. We're built upon a solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. It'll set us straight if we listen to it. Thankfully, the disciples did. I'm so tired of the television preaching that goes on. Everything is feely touchy. Charade, games, exploitations of people's fears. No factual presentation of what Jesus has done, what the cross is all about. But even with that said, we have an obligation to hear the word of God. We can read the book for ourselves. We can see, we can learn, we can hear, we can obey. Lord, help us to have that kind of character. That you might be glorified in what you have done and will continue to do for every searching soul. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Closing hymn is 405 in the hymnal. 405. So one of the wonderful songs in our hymnal.
And it speaks to the idea, of course, that we need a solid place for our faith to be rooted. It's not out there in la-la land. It's not etherical. It's based upon the solid rock. So let's sing together. Number 405 in the brown hymn. song is that we're fastened to the written word of God. Nothing etherical in it. There's no ooh. None of that stuff. The solid truth of God's word. The book says it, and I believe it. Because God wrote the book. And God cannot lie. Cannot lie, the scripture says. He doesn't lie. Even more importantly, he cannot lie. He is truth personified. Hope you're trusting in the Lord today. 
God has promised that he will receive you if you trust in him. How wonderful that news is. No church tonight, next few Sundays as well. Jared's getting ready for his big surgery, open heart surgery, replacement of the inner valve, and aortic surgery, which is the large artery that comes out of the heart. That has to be replaced as well. So they're both going to be done in one day. Then we've got our little daughter, <laughs> loving daughter, uh, Mercy. She's our adopted daughter. <laughs> and she's going to have procedures done on Tuesday. And they're getting her ready for her surgeries. They're doing um, mapping of the brain, putting the probes in where they need to go and so forth. And that's on Tuesday that they're going to do that. Her surgery is the end of June. Jared's is the 6th of July. Then Mercy goes back for the second part of her surgery after the 6th of July. So it's a boom, da boom, da boom. And we need to pray and pray and pray that God will intervene and he will get the glory. Amen. We're dismissed. No church tonight. Thank you, dear.